Okay, Erev Tov. This week is Parshas Vayetze, and we're going to learn some amazing things based on the teachings of the Sfasemes and also from the last Lubavitch Rebbe in his Sefer Likute Sichos. And uh, we're going to learn a really a lot about Yaakov today and have a great appreciation for him. So let's go through a few uh, psukim, a few rashis, ask a few questions. Wow, how do you like that? We got them all, all used. Okay, Baruch Hashem. Okay, so the first, now to, to better appreciate what's going on over here, we have to remember how the last Parsha ended. Remember Yaakov, who took the brachas from Esau, and Rivka tells Yaakov he should flee for his life because Esav wants to kill him. And Rivka uh, tells Yitzchak to send Yitzchak away because he has to find a shidduch. And in last week's parsha, it tells us that Yaakov was sent away. He was sent away. And it then tells us that Esav saw that Yaakov was sent away to find a way far away. So Esav then married the daughter of Yishmael. So at the end of last week's Parsha, Yaakov left. Okay, so if he left, we begin the new Parsha with this Pasuk. Yaakov left Be'er Shava. And went to Haran. So, and then it says he, he's moving along and then he came upon a place and he fell asleep, etc., etc. This whole first Pasuk is totally not necessary because we already know all this information from the last Parsha. And as I've said many times, and, and, and I haven't you know, done thorough uh, investigation, but quite often, uh, probably more often than not, the first Pasuk of every Parsha is always redundant. And what is the redundance doing there? Well, it's probably telling us some very important messages. So Rashi and the Medrash, they all go to town on this idea. Why does it have to say Yaakov left from Beersheba and went to Haran? We know that he already left. So Rashi quotes the Medrash in the second source. It should have just say, and Yaakov went to Haran. Why does it mention his departure from Beersheba again? So Rashi tells us like this from the Medrash. But in, so in other words, why do we have to know he left Beersheba? I mean, the main thing is to know he went to Haran. So he answers from the Medrash, tends to tell us that the departure of a righteous person from his city makes an impression. As long as a righteous man is in the city, he is its glory and splendor and beauty. When he leaves it, there depart also its glory, its splendor, and its beauty. Okay, so what what is the, the the Torah trying to tell us? If we're trying to tell us that there was no need to tell us that he left Beersheba because he already left Beersheba, so why is it telling us? Probably wants to tell us something, so. Why are we focusing on the negative aspects of a tzaddik living the city? <laughs> like, what's the point? It has an impact. 
Well, no, but but he's gone already. He's gone already. So, like, what what do I care? You know, is this is this showing you the greatness of a person that when he leaves, the city is is not there anymore? So it's it's something to think like well, just like say, well, he left and he wasn't appreciated, and now they appreciate him now that he's gone, and therefore what? And therefore what? So what do we learn from that? Like, like, so what do I do with that now? <laughs> Thank you very much for telling me this information. And therefore, what? <clears throat> like, it's like, oh, well, it's bad. So like, like, what's the what's the real lesson here? Well, of course, it's Sadik's in a place. It's a great day. He leaves. It's it's not so good. So what? What's what's what's? Why do I need to know this? Like, what's so important about this? Yeah. But Itzhak was still in the city, right? I mean. Yes, it was still in the city. <coughs> So, so what? What about the glory of that? Yeah, but why is the vacuum created? He's still there. Okay, that's a very interesting question. So, the truth of the matter is, if if there's nobody, if you don't have somebody special there, no one will even know that something's missing. Everyone is special. I mean, Yitzhak's there, but every tzaddik contributes something, right? So, Yitzhak's there. So, if Yitzhak wouldn't be there, then even nobody would know that that's what happened. But still, it's difficult. And yeah, your question is a valid question, too. So that's question number one. Question number two, the Medrash Rabbah says another interesting thing. Now, you notice, uh, if you heard the Arab Shabbos drush last week, um, you notice that Avram made a treaty with Avimelech. Yitzchak made a treaty with Avimelech. What about Yaakov? Yaakov never made a treaty with Avimelech. Okay, so this is what the Medrash in Source 3 picks up as well. He left Beersheba. What does he mean? So Rabbi says, Yaakov fled from the depth of the oath. He said, Avimelech should not stand up to me and say, swear to me as your grandfather did, which would delay the joy of my children in entering Israel for seven generations. In other words, uh, we know that when Avram made the, the oath with um, Avimelech, the Medrash says, and therefore the Jews were delayed of going into capturing Israel seven generations. And then when Yitzhak did, it was another generation. So Yaakov says, well, I don't want, I don't want to make any oaths with him. That's where he left. He left Beersheba, Meaning, why was it called Beersheba? Because of the oaths. He left the oaths. So now the question goes both ways. Why did Yaakov not want to make an oath with Avimelech? And if he felt it was proper not to make an oath with Avimelech, why did Avram and Yitzhak, yes, make an oath with Avimelech? I mean, what was the difference now than before? If Avram felt it was a good idea to make an oath, and Yitzhak felt it was not a good idea to make an oath, so why wouldn't Yaakov want to make an oath with Second question. Third question. Um, this is a very interesting source number four. This is a really uh, fascinating midrash. The Gemara asks, um, what happens when a person unintentionally uh, kills a person? Can he take refuge? So the Medrash says, a man who has unintentionally killed another person may take refuge either in one of the three cities of refuge in the Transjordan or one of the three cities in Canaan. 
Our patriarch Jacob took refuge in Haran. He fled there because he feared that his wicked brother Esau would slay him. When Hashem saw that Yaakov was deeply distressed, he appeared before him in a dream. Okay, etc., etc. So, what is the Medrash implying here? What, what's the Medrash implying here? It said, it said, what do you do if you kill someone unintentionally? You, go to the city of you flee to a city of refuge. And then what do we say? Then we go right into Yaakov, also fled for refuge. But he didn't kill anybody. Yeah, well, well, I don't know. It seems that maybe he killed his brother. I mean, why, like, in other words, why is he fleeing? He didn't kill anybody. Maybe he was afraid that Okay, let him be afraid, but what does that have to do with killing unintentionally? He didn't kill anybody here. But he didn't kill anybody. He didn't kill him. He didn't kill him. The last thing he did was, he stole from him. If you steal, the worst you could say is he stole. Okay, you don't go to a city reference for stealing. And he definitely, the last thing in his mind was to kill anybody. So that's very difficult. Further in, down, when uh, Aliphaz comes to him and he takes money from him, Esau's son, he said, the, if a person doesn't have money, he's, he's like a dead. So same thing can be applied here. No, but they took the money from Yaakov. Yeah, Yaakov yeah. didn't take it away from anybody. And maybe the brachos would mean that Esau won't have any money. Is that what you mean? No, Aliphaz, son of Esau. So, right? again, we're talking about killing someone unintentionally goes to the city of refuge. Yaakov did not kill anyone unintentionally. So we have to understand what, what's the Medrash trying to make an analogy for. Okay, next. When Yaakov comes to Haran, he notices there's a bunch of shepherds lying around. And before he meets them, in Source 5 it says, when all the flocks were gathered there, the stone would be Vigolalu Esau I put it in red. They would roll the mouth a rock from the mouth of the well. Mm -hmm. Very heavy rock. All so all he has to do they roll it over. Okay. Then when they tell, so therefore they weren't come, they, he said, what are you doing here? We don't have enough people to roll the rock. You're waiting for some more shepherds. Then he sees Rachel coming, the next possible there in source five. And what does he do? He goes right over to the rock. And he rolls it himself. By Yogel and he rolls the stone off the well. Now, I forgot to put in the question here. <laughs> After I printed it, I remember, oh, I forgot to put the question in here. Now, what, 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 what happened? What, what do you mean he, he, he rolled off the rock? What, what's the message there? He did it by himself. Okay, the problem is, look at the two Hebrew words in red where I have what they did and what he did. And what's the... Red word for them to roll is vigolelu, golau, is to roll. What does it say by Yaakov? Vayogel. Vayogel does not mean to roll. What does vayogel mean? To what? Be happy. That's one. Excited. No, uh, how about to reveal? So. So the question is, like, 
Rashi there says for the Medrash, well, he took it like you flip a cork off of a bottle. Yeah. Just popped it right off. But still, what's this, what's this word vayogel? Like it seems to say he, he revealed the rock. So what does it mean he revealed the rock? Like you could say he revealed the water, revealed the water. but it says he revealed the rock. Okay, you, you don't want to say he rolled it because I guess it was easy, but what does it mean he revealed the rock? So that's a, a technical question um, that needs discussion. Okay, let's look at one more interesting uh, piece. And this is really the main theme of the class coming up here. There's a mentor says on the Pasuk uh, in Bereshis later on, it says, then I will remember my covenant with Yaakov, I will also remember my covenant with Yitzchak, and also my covenant with Avram. And if you look in the Hebrew, it says by Avram and Yitzchak, it says Af, Af, the word Af, but not by Yaakov. That's what it says. Why does it say Af also for Avram Yitzchak and not for Yaakov? The answer is because his bed, Yaakov's bed, was complete for him. Avram's offspring included Yishmael and the children of Keturah. Yitzchak's offspring included Esau and the masters of Adam. Yaakov's bed was complete, meaning all his children were righteous. As the verse states, we are all children of one man. So the question now is, why was Yaakov totally successful in raising his children while Avram and Yitzchak were not. Now you might want to say, well, Avram had a little trouble because Hagar was the mother of one of the kids. But didn't Yaakov also have, he had two wives, right? Rachel he had and four Rachel. wives. So were two of them concubines? Yeah. Sort of, maids, concubines. Were Jewish or not? As Jewish as the other two. They all were sisters okay. anyway. All, okay. all four were sisters. Okay. Okay. So the question is, what is it about Yaakov that he succeeded, um, and especially he had 12 kids, which you'd figure if anything is going to be much harder. The statistics uh, for failure, his, his grandfather had two kids, had a 50% rate. His father had two kids, 50% rate. He has 12 kids. Even if he has a 90% rate, he would lose one. Yeah, but he had the benefit of his father and his grandfather. That's he also the benefit of his mother. Sure. Yeah. The benefit of his mother. His mother, his mother never saw his children. Mm. But the lineage from his mother. Yitzhak and Abraham have a big impact on this. Okay, let's put it this way. If Yitzhak and Abraham were so good, why couldn't they get it done right? Because they didn't have the same meadows. Okay. So what is unique about Yaakov that he was able to raise a family of amazing children without any problems? And I think what's so important about this is um, for us who are still raising children, what is there about Yaakov that can we can learn from? And if it's too late for us, so what can we teach our children, for our grandchildren to maybe... Uh, you know, not make any mistakes Rabbi, as well. That's why we're here. You once said in, in, uh, in your Russia, never too late. So we have hope. Yeah. <laughs> okay, never too late. It could even be with our children as well. 
that that can definitely uh, work as well. So these are some of the general questions over here, and to understand this, we have to uh, explain a fundamental difference between Yaakov and Avram and Yitzchak and what they were supposed to do and you know their successes and not successes. If you look at Yaakov's life from, uh, let's start from this week's Parsha. Um, if you're familiar with the stories, let's just quickly go over Yaakov's life over here. Yaakov runs away from home. Okay, now he has to get married. And for 20 years, we see, what do we know about Yaakov? He's a shepherd. He's a shepherd. He marries four women. He has 13 children. He has a lot of difficult business dealings with Lavan. Next week's Parsha, he goes back home. He has to worry about a war with Esau. He has to fight against an angel. Um, he has a daughter that is, yeah. is, is mistreated, kidnapped, etc. in a very terrible way. There's a lot of challenges with his children, with Yosef, and this and that, and all these things. What do you not see with Yaakov that you did see much more with his father and grandfather? They didn't send children away. What? They didn't send children away. Who didn't send children away? Yaakov. But uh, neither did Yitzchak. Yeah, but if but okay, what what I'm really driving at is you see Avram does a lot of spiritual stuff. He did both. Yitzchak does a lot of spiritual stuff. Yaakov, we don't see anything spiritual. Besides the fact that as he left, he has it. He 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 institutes the Mar of Prayer. But besides that, it's a very mundane life. Like if you, well, didn't you, he have a spiritual dream about the angels? So he had a dream. He had a dream. He had a dream. He was going up. Fine. He had a dream. But what? But what do you see him doing? Especially when you come to the middle of this parsha, this whole for twenty-two psukim with the speckled sheep and the spotted sheep and the blotched sheep. It, it's like he's like wheeling and dealing in business. Like he is doing. Regular stuff. Getting married, having kids, issues with his wives. One wife she's having trouble with kids, doesn't have an argument with his wife. Arguments with love on. It's not like you don't see him like the like with Avram, you see a lot of other things. You see a lot of spirituality, especially the Midrashim. Talk at length how Avram preached to the masses, called out in the name of Hashem, Yitzchak. But Yaakov, you don't really see anything exceptional. Really not. And that's curious. <laughs> What's going on over here? So the Nesiva Shalom tells us one thing, and then I'll develop this more with what the Lubavitch Rebbe says. He says, we know that the three patriarchs had three separate qualities that they excelled in. Avram excelled in chesed, in kindness. Yitzhak excelled in gvura, control and judgment. 
And Yaakov can, excelled in something called Tiferes, which we'll have to explain. Now we know that there are three realms uh, in Judaism. One is positive mitzvahs, to do positive mitzvahs. Another is to refrain from sin. Okay, one is what you have to do, one you're not allowed to do, and then there's a third realm. What's the third realm? Optional. The third realm is the optional. It's not a mitzvah, it's not a ver, it's up to you. For example, you got to get up, if you're a man, you got to get up and put on film. Okay, you got to do that. You have no choice. You have to positively do it. A woman has to light candles, air shops. A woman has to go to the mikvah. Uh, uh, neither man or woman can eat trade. Okay. So, you have 248 positive mitzvahs, things you're supposed to do. 365 things you're not allowed to do. But that's not the majority of your life. The majority of life is things that are not a mitzvah and not an avera. We call this devar rishos, optional. So, what do you do with the optional means? Making a living, exercising, eating. Uh, could very well be about 80 to 90% of things you do during the day. If you think about it, how much time, and I don't mean this as a criticism at all, so you don't have to be anxious here. Uh, how much time do good Jews spend doing mitzvahs in, a, in a, an entire day? So if you're a man, you have a little advantage, you're kind of forced into davening three times a day. Women don't have that same strict obligation. But think about it, you've been working, mostly working a full day. It's not really a mitzvah, we call this the world of rishos. So, for each one of these three realms, we needed a patriarch. Avram, who, who really focused on kindness and love, so that really is the source of all positive mitzvahs. When you do a positive mitzvah, you know, you do it with love, and, you, and, and you're extending yourself, and it creates love between you and Hashem. Amazing. Yitzhak, who was more of control and judgment and fear, so he taught us more about to be careful with the negatives. Well, two patriarchs, two areas. We only got one left. Yaakov has to teach us how to deal with the Dvar with the neutral zone, to take a uh, Star Trek term, the neutral zone. And the neutral zone is not such a clear zone. Mitzvahs, you know you're supposed to do a mitzvah. Averos, you know you're not supposed to do this. But the neutral zone is not such a clearly defined zone. And many people can drown in the neutral zone. You can, you can indulge in excess. And that makes you uh, a person who is very much looking to uh, be a baltaiva that you follow your cravings, and that's not a very healthy lifestyle. And then once you become a big baltaiva, you then spill into areas of averos. Or you could use them in other ways. Yaakov is going to be the patriarch to teach us this. Now, that's one aspect. And the idea being that how do, how do we, we understand a mitzvah there's no question what you're supposed to do. And Avera, there's no question what you're not supposed to do. 
But in this realm of Rishus, it's very dangerous, a slippery slope. And if you're not careful, you could either go on a very bad path or you'd be very careful, you have to go on another path. <clears throat> it's, is it a world you can avoid no. or not? And that's a very interesting question. You could try to avoid it as much as possible. You're you could try to avoid it as much as possible. You know, try to sit and learn in a yeshiva all day and hope someone will support you. That's one way of avoiding it. Is that the will of Hashem or not? That's a good question. But then there's others of us who have to go into that world of Rishus. And the question is, does it drag us down or not? You're in a work environment where people say off-color jokes and behave in a way that's, you know, lots of lush and horror and things like that, and you fall into that. Or you could try to do something else and to maybe improve that. So we see that in, as Judaism was evolving, Aram and Yitzchak will say had one type of shlichus, one type of role, and Yaakov had another shlichus. And what was the different shlichus over here? Avram is coming into a world that doesn't know anything about ethical monotheism. So he has to bring that into the world. And he brings that through the realm of kindness. And Yitzhak too has to push that agenda too. But he brings it in another way from the attribute of control. But what is the main thing that they are supposed to do? Remember, they're just getting into the world over here. So the Rambam says that the world was pagan and Avram had arguments and he had big uh, quarrels, uh, debates, improving how Yiddishkeit was correct, uh, 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 being, believing in God is correct. And he won over a lot of the masses. But what was his main avoda? The main avoda in Avram in Yitzchak is what is called in the, the terminology of the Kabbalists is the avoda of Beirurim. Beiruri means to remove the good from the bad. Okay? And uh, there's a number of sources that talk about this. But he wanted to influence others to call out in the name of Hashem. Okay? And that was their job. And why they dug wells, for example. You see, wells was a big thing. Avram dug wells. Yisuk dug wells. Why did they dig wells? Well, we talked about that in one of our classes, I think, last week. But the simple meaning is, a well was a very important public place. Without wells, you didn't have water, you didn't live. So what's the best way to do outreach? Free food and free water. So if you dig a well, people are gonna wanna go to the well. And now, once they're there, he could teach them all about Torah. So it's an opportunity to influence others. So as much as Avram and Yitzchak were not people who just sat in their corners because that made them different than everybody else, they went out and preached to the world. But what was their ultimate goal? Their ultimate goal was to not be negatively affected by everyone else. Because there's a lot of resistance. They're in a world of resistance. So they're preaching godliness. Avram's preaching godliness through kindness. Yitzchak's preaching godliness through control. There is a lot of resistance in the world. And Avram's job is to promote this. Yitzchak's job is to promote this in a different way. But what's the greatest danger? 
is they can get killed. They can be negatively, negatively influenced. One guy against the world. Avram uh, tried very hard to uh, let the world know about this. But uh, the main thing they wanted was to survive and to not have people oppose them to the extent that they couldn't be able to perform what they wanted to do. And that, to a certain degree, they had success. But where did they not have success? They success it says, for example, Avram, when he left Haran, he went, and with all the souls that they made in Haran. So what does that mean? They, they got a lot of people to, to go under the sheltering wings of the Shechina. But how many of them stuck? None. None. Yitzchak, how many of them stuck? None. Why? Not to their um, discredit, but that wasn't their job. Their job was to affect the world, to inspire the world, but their job was not to transform the world. In other words, when you deal with evil, there are two ways to deal with evil. One way is to push the evil away and not be affected by it. So you're trying to promote what's positive and you gotta be awfully careful that the evil doesn't affect you and you're just kind of pushing it away, pushing the opposition so you can still send out the message of Yiddishkeit. Fine. Avram and Yitzhak succeeded. They put Judaism on the map. Were they able to transform people? No. But how did they put it on the map if it was incomplete? Well, people knew about it. Okay. It's like advertising. Okay. All right? You, you know, but before they came to the world, there was no ethical monotheism. None. So Avram does a lot of amazing heroics to show that there's a God in this world. And that certainly inspired people. People hear about it. But is it able to take that which is evil and turn it into something that is really good? That Avram and Yitzhak weren't able to do that. They were able to not allow the evil to affect them. They could neutralize their opposition. Or in other ways, we could say that's the difference between what we call the quote-unquote tzaddik versus the quote-unquote Baal Tshuva. The tzaddik runs away from evil, doesn't deal with the evil, keeps it far away, and therefore doesn't really come to sinning. The Baal Tshuva confronts the evil, may even lose to the evil, but then the real Baal Tshuva has to transform the opposition. That's the real goal in life. And... Let's, uh, let's read one of our points over here. And, and although, you see, it's very interesting, they had some certain degrees of success. For example, Source 7 says that uh, Yishmol eventually did tshuva. He eventually did tshuva, but he didn't become a Jew. We find in next week's Parsha that Esau goes over to Yaakov and, and kisses him. So he has a little bit of remorse of what's going on over there, but never really became a full good person, so it was. So if you look after 10 by the point, it says, the service of Avram Yisuk was to spread holiness 
and to ensure that the negativity should not interfere with their divine service. Yet their service did not include refining and transforming the evil. This explains why Yishmael, as the Medrash says, departed from Avram, and why Yisav departed from Yitzhak, because obviously were not able to transform the negativity to holiness. They weren't able to do that. Not as a fault, that wasn't their mission. Like it's very uh, uh, unproductive to try to compare the patriarchs, which one was better. They each had a special shlichus, their special mission. Avram and Yitzhak, the main thing was just to spread it as much as possible. And the more you spread things, the less you'll be influenced. Okay. And obviously, this is waiting for the right time and opportunity to be able to not only um, teach your Yiddishkeit, but you should to, to transform this. And this is going to be Yaakov's role. Yaakov, who never intended on trying out for that role, it was a role that was put on him against his will. Because originally, it's supposed to be Yaakov and Esau together to promote this to the world. But Esau backs out, so Yaakov is the one that's left with this. But what Yaakov's job is to do, and this is the, the Pusik says, for example, Titain MS Yaakov, give truth to Yaakov. Yaakov is the man of truth. So when we look at the world from the eyes of truth, let's look at things in this world. There are certain things in this world that look to be good things, and there are certain things in this world that look to be evil things. Now, the truth of the matter is, that's not true. That's not truth. Truth, the truth is, everything comes from Hashem. Everything. And therefore, if everything comes from Hashem, it can only be good. It's not possible anything to be bad. Ah, you're going to say, but I see so many bad things in the world. Answers, it cannot be from God that bad things happen. If you see anything is bad in this world, it's only because you're isolating it from the total picture of reality. And when you isolate something in the way the here and the now looks bad, then I guess it's bad. But that's not true. The truth, the ultimate truth is Enod Movado. There's nothing else but Hashem. And whatever happens in this world, no matter what, a person has free will choice to make bad decisions. Is that, but ultimately, this all has to get back to the point of goodness. And therefore, when we deal with evil, so there's certain people who don't have the power to do anything more than just run away from it. Because if, if they get caught into that, in the vortex of the evil, they will become evil. So they just kind of run away from it. They push it away and they don't let it get involved in their lives. Which is great. That's a real tzaddik. But the fact is God wants everything in this world to scream out his glory. God wants a domicile down here. And the rabbis say down here doesn't mean just on planet earth. But in the lowest places where you think there nothing would be good in this world. <coughs> so now, how is that going to happen? This is where you need the person who's able to look at everything in the world from with the eyesight of MS and not to be afraid of anything. 
to know that if you carry the real truth of Torah, nothing can ever harm you. And if anything, you are able to affect everything in the world. And this is what Yaakov brought in, was his turn to bring this into the world. Not to run away from evil things, meet it head on, and as the more as the Mishnah says, Ezel Gibor, who was a, a warrior, Hakovesh es Yitzro. What does Kovesh mean? So the English is conquer, but really there's a, a more a term, it's called Kvisha pickling. To pickle something. It's called Kvisha. To pickle. What do you do when you pickle something? You take a cucumber and you pickle it. You're tra- but you're transforming it. It's not a cucumber anymore. It's a pickle. Change your taste. It's interesting. They they said about one of the great rabbis. I forgot it was the out one of the altars, altar of Slobodka, I think. Bakram came in there. It was like Mamish, such a holy place. And somebody said, you know what happened? You went into Slobodka and then they pickled you. That's the use of they uh, I could you be can't go back into it, They pickled you. It, it, you just were transformed by being there. How were they able to transform? Because they really were able to look at who you were and they never could see anything evil about you. So is this why um, he went to the cities of refuge? He wasn't there necessarily to hide, but to transform people? Is that? Hang on, hang on. You're, you're getting a little ahead of yourself and you're shifting in a way you don't want to go. But okay. We'll, we'll get to the city of refuge. But to, but to really feel you've got the power. Avram Yitzhak did not yet have that kind of power. Avram only had kindness. It was not a balanced yet approach. Yitzhak only had control, not a balanced approach. Yaakov has a synthesis of both. And what that means is, when Yaakov looks at any situation in life, He's not afraid of it. He looks at every situation in life as an, as an opportunity. And once you encounter Yaakov, you cannot be the same person. As opposed to the idea of live and let live, where the tzaddik says, I'm the tzaddik, he can do what he wants. Yaakov believed in live and make live. And he knew that his role was to impact and to change. How can you do that? Because you have to look deep into the core of everything in this world and say there is a root of good that I have to tap into. That evil is only superficial. It's not real. And there's nothing for me to be afraid of. If I'm holding on to the real MS, the real MS of Torah, and I know what's MS, and it's clear to me, and I see another... Um, uh, we'll call an opponent. There's nothing to be afraid of because I'm going with the MS and the MS can never lose. Can never lose. And the truth is, deep inside that Russia is a tzaddik that wants to come out. There's a tzaddik that wants to come out. That's the core of every human being. At that time, at least, before we developed the moleks and things like that. But that is what Yaakov's role, his shlichus was to not go to places that look so terrible and bring out all the good of that place. That's an incredible challenge. Avram didn't have that challenge. Yitzhak didn't have that challenge. 
They had other challenges. They succeeded. Had they failed, Yaakov would not have been in the opportunity to do what he's doing now. If Avram would not have developed kindness and Yitzhak would not have developed control, Yaakov wouldn't have tools to deal with. But now that he's got both tools of kindness and control, now, and his trick was, as they say, to know when to hold them and to know when to fold them. You know, if you're, in, I'll use the baseball analogy. You know, in baseball, a pitcher is an important player. And if you could throw a good fastball, that's a really good thing. But, but you got to have more than one pitch. You have to pitch, the batter knows every time you throw a fastball, he'll, he'll get used to that. So you have to try another kind of a curve ball, a knuckle ball, it goes at different speed, whatever. You got to keep them on their toes. Same thing, if you want to be able to affect others, you have to have a bigger arsenal to be able to change others. And Yaakov had that arsenal. And this is what the big challenge was in Yaakov's life. Last week, Yaakov is sitting in yeshiva studying Torah. He's what we call the complete tzaddik. He's totally removed from the world. The last thing in his mind is to go take on the world and transform the world. He's a coil guy, you know, in Lakewood, wants to stay there his whole life and, 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 and have his children stay in Lakewood their whole life. Nothing against that. That's a very nice thing. But Hashem says, I need some people to transform the world. This is called Tikkun Olam. And this is what Rivka really wanted him to do. Now, really, Esau's job was supposed to be that, but he was a total failure. He couldn't do this. So Yaakov, with 63 years of Torah study in, under his belt, and the total appreciation of what is MS, what's true, Hashem says, now you have a pretty good idea of MS, but you're going to have to learn more about this. So now what's the first job he has to do? Look in source number 11. When it talks about the city of Haran. This is by Avram and Haran. But anyway, look at what the word Haran, that passage, the Nun, is inverted. So Rashi mentions something about that. He says it's inverted to tell you that until the time of Avram, the Haran is also the word Haron, which is anger. The anger of Hashem was kindled against the world. In other words, Haran is a really bad place. A real bad place. And what is, let's go back now to the beginning of the Parsha. What are we told? Yaakov leaves the tranquil world of Beersheba. He goes to the worst place in the world. Now, ostensibly he's going to find a shidduch. But that's just the pretense. He would, you know, he could find a wife another way. But what he really had to do was start changing the world. And that's going to be his first job, is to go to Haran, to go into the worst place of the worst Shakranas. There's a reason why it's called Base Lavan, the White House. There's a reason why, from the beginning, the White House has been the most corrupt place in the world. Okay? And all they do is lie and cheat and steal and everything. Now, you're going to go there, and his job is, now not like Eliezer, whose job was to pluck Rivka out of Haran and put her in Hebron. So we just avoid all of that. 
Yaakov's job is to go into the spiritual scumball world of Haran and to do what? To live a normal, proper Torah life. To get married, to have kids, to make a parnasa, to become wealthy, and to be honest, and to reflect and to transform that area. That was his job. And to leave such a place with four wonderful wives, 12 wonderful children, and lots of money, and to go back and take all from the worst evil to see all the good that was there, take it out and bring it back to Eretz Yisrael. This was what this Parsha is about. Now, if you think about this, if you have to give, as I did last week, if you have to say one word to define this Parsha, and we'll, we'll play like hangman, it's four Hebrew letters to define what is this Parsha all about. It's about four letters. The first one is a gimel. First one's a gimel. Second letter is a lamed. Third letter's above. Fourth letter's a suf. Gullus. Gullus. What is gullus? Gullus is exile. What's this in exile and redeem, redemptive? Well, when we live in with the Beis HaMikdash, the Shekhinah is palpable. It's clear there's a God. Now, you don't have to only have Yerushalayim. We are told that the houses of the patriarchs was like a mishkan. Was like a, a, a house of God. That's what we said. There was the cloud of glory over the tents, right? The bread never spoiled. The light stayed the whole week from the near that they lit. Avram's home, Yitzchak's home, was like a base of Mikdash. It was all good, but it was all away from the evil people of the world. And that's good. That's how it had to start. And you want to inspire others, but Carefully, carefully. And you're not, you're not planning to change them. You may inspire them. They may get a little excited for a while. They may be friendly to Yiddishkeit. They may not be anti-Semites. But to be able to stand the rigors of being a, a, a proper God-fearing person, that they couldn't do. But they were impressed. Yaakov's job is to go out into the mundane and make it holy. To bring out all the godliness that's there. Now, believe it or not, what do we call that? We call that Golos. Golos, when you leave the safe confines of your home, you go to other places where there is no godliness, but since you know the truth is there's godliness everywhere. And what Yaakov is really teaching us, as we know, the acts of the patriarchs is a sign for the children, is how we have to live in Golos, which we are presently living in. And if you want to go in more detail, Yaakov goes through four separate types of exile. And that corresponds to the four exiles that the Jewish people will be in. That's way beyond what we want to talk about tonight. But the idea is, how do we live? When we are living in Gaulus, why are we going into Gaulus? You know why we're going into Gaulus? It's to find the good in the rest of the world. The holy sparks that are in the world, we have to find and look and... and, and, and and, and turn that, that evil into good because that's really what it is. 
And as much as Avram was respected by the, when he had to bury his wife, by the Bnei Ches, the Chitites, but they still were Chitites, and they didn't, didn't become Jews. No matter how much Yitzhak, he couldn't change them. But Yaakov was able, now of course he, he's not able to change Lavan because Lavan is like the height of corruption. But still he's able to take out from Lavan a family, a Jewish family, and everything that he's able to accomplish with this. Okay, so now that we understand this, let us uh, go a little bit further over here and start to answer some of the questions that we had. So let's start with the first question. What was the first question? Got to get them in order. Well, I'm going to leave that. I don't want. I don't want to do that first. Let's do number two. Let's do number two. Why did he not make a covenant with um, uh, Avimelech? Because what's the idea of a, co- a covenant? A covenant is a non-aggression treaty. So Avram and Yitzchak, since they could not transform anybody, the best they could do is make a treaty. We just make a non-aggression treaty. You know, you won't be able to influence us. And we'll be able to be Jews. And that was all they were happy with. Yaakov said, I don't want to have anything to do with that business. My job is not to, is not to have non-aggression pacts. My job is to transform the world. And you know what? This Avimelech such a rotten stinker. There's nothing to transform over there. I'm just leaving him behind. I'm leaving him behind. I, that old approach was good for Avram and Yitzchak, but it's not for me. Especially not to just spend a lot of uh, diplomacy to make sure he doesn't hurt me. That's not my job. My job is to change things, to transform things. This now explains why Yaakov, this, the, um, the Chidusha Harim explains, that this explains, uh, so now we know why he goes to Choron. And now we understand why he's going into Golos, because he did kill someone. Who did he kill? Esau. He killed Esau. How did he kill Esau? Well, we know that the wicked people in their lifetimes are considered dead. Now, here is the Chidusha Harum. I don't have it with you in the thing. I'm not the Sfasemis, rather. He says, why did he go to Gauls? Who did he kill? He says, the answer is, you know what was considered for him on his level? We're not going to call it a hate of a sin. But some of you use the word hate means deficiency. Why wasn't he Makar of Esau? Why couldn't he try to transform Esau? Now, you could say, well, his father didn't succeed. Well, of course his father didn't succeed because his father didn't have the tools to succeed. You see, it's not that Yitzhak was a bad father and he couldn't change Esau. But Yitzchak didn't have all the tools yet in the arsenal that a Jewish father could have. Yaakov, on the other hand, who now has both his father's traits and his grandfather's traits, he could have changed Esau. And what, what does that mean? Well, we know the, the wicked in their lifetimes are dead. So what does that mean? And if Yaakov could have transformed him, he would have been alive. The fact that he runs away and says, I really don't want anything to do with Esau, what does that mean? 
He killed him. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, he didn't go to an official city of exile, of refuge. They didn't have them yet. But he is going into exile. And it's very interesting. The laws of, if you go to see a re- refuge, right, the killer goes to a refuge, so the person who wants to can't kill him if he's in a city of refuge. That's the law. So why did Esau not kill Yaakov? Because he knew he was by Lovan, and he'd never get out of Lovan's house alive. There's no way Yaakov would either get out alive, not just physically, but spiritually. What bothered Esau about Yaakov more than anything else? That Yaakov was so holy and special. If he only would be a bum like him, then it would be fine. So he says, that's okay. We'll let him go to Lovan, and he'll become a bum. And I don't have to worry. Lovin will get the job done. You know, Hitler can kill Jews or North America can can assimilate Jews. He gets the same goal. There's just no Jews left. So Asa said, what do I got to kill him for? Lovin will take care of it. That's sort of the city of refuge, so to speak. Aye, but we go to city of refuge not just to hide from the evil, but to transform ourselves and what we're capable of doing. And that's what Yaakov was killed Asa. And what, what does it mean? Of course, he did. It was unintentional. You know why? Says the Svasemes, uh, because he didn't know he had it in himself. He didn't realize how much power he had. That's the thing with Yaakov. It's a lot of times you have a lot of power. You don't believe you got this kind of power because you never had to exercise it. Yaakov did not think he could steal the brachas from his brothers and get away from it, and he was able to do it. And you see, that's the first example where he goes in and he transforms that blessing. Instead of going to a wicked man, goes to a righteous man. He has that ability with the power of truth to see the kernel of good in everything and take everything good that's supposed to be good in that. And therefore, the Medrash is saying, in a way, he killed Asa. But we can't fault him. It's unintentional. He didn't plan on killing him spiritually. He just thought I'd do what my father and grandfather did and just stay away and let, let him affect me negatively. To which Hashem says, okay, so you got to learn. Remember, if a person kills unintentionally, he has to go to see a refuge, not just as a punishment, but how to learn to try to help others. So maybe you'll get a little training over there by Lovin, and you're going to learn that what appears to be evil, there's good parts to it, and if I'm open to what's there and to be able to find the good, I'll find the good because that's the real truth and I shouldn't be afraid of it. I should get involved in it. And that's so important for us to realize that, you know, out in the world, you know, people will say you got to be afraid of the secular world and go away, you know. Okay, you have to be careful, but who's to say you're not meant to transform it? And that is ultimately what Yaakov's goal was because Hashem has to be known in the entire world. It has to be known in the world where it's not easy to see Hashem. And we need people to transform things. And that's what Yaakov was able to do. With this, we can now understand um, as well, why did all his children come out okay? Because, you see, with children, as we all know, children prevent a, uh, pose many challenges. And... Of course, there's not everything our children do is so amazing. And some children are very hard to deal with. Now, there's two ways to deal with children, either to control them or to find what's good and what we can transform in that. 
And one of the great Hasidic Rebbes who was a master at this was the Piazetzner Rebbe. And he wrote a sefer called Chovas HaTalmidim, which in English is called A Student's Obligation. You can read it in English. And it was in the early 1900s where he needed to transform the whole idea of Jewish religious Haredi education. And he said the problem with education is we want children to be, what's the word, um, obedient. He said that's not what we want children to be. We want children to be what they're supposed to be. A child is a wild child. He's not obedient. Well, maybe because he has great talents that you are inhibiting. The kid with the biggest anger can be the best chazan because he has so much emotion. You have to know there's so much good over there. But, but in the world, said, just be obedient and listen and do what you're told. But that's not where you're going to bring out the good. We're just saying push away the evil. No, we get there. That, that which we see is evil. That's not evil. That's amazing. And the kid who pulls all the stunts on the teacher in class, that's the cleverest kid. You want that kid doing things positively. You don't want to squish them. So Yaakov, because he has forced to learn how to do this, he could look at each and every child and not feel threatened by any of the children and help them develop into the people that they're supposed to be. You have to genuinely look at parenting as a job of not just hiding the evil from your children. We have to protect them. They can't have any internet access. They can't have any screen in front of them. I'm not saying yes, no. You know, There's what to be said about that. But the real solution is make them be happy Jews. And how they can be happy Jews by not throttling them from doing things that are productive, although they may not be, quote-unquote, in the mainstream curriculum. If a kid has a propensity for art, why can't they learn how to paint and be happy with painting? You know, not everybody can learn Gemara so well. Not everybody can learn Chumash and Rashi so well. Does that mean, well, you don't fit in and you're a problem and now we have to find a way that you don't disturb everyone else? Or you say, there is a lot of... There's no, no kid is a bad kid. Every kid's an amazing kid with a unique role. My job is to be open enough to see what that is. Now, Yaakov had that ability and that's how he was able to raise all these kinds of wonderful people. He's able, able, even able to handle four wives, which is not an easy task. <laughs> And we'll talk on Friday night or Shabbos morning uh, more about that idea. But that, and that's the greatness of Yaakov. He did for 63 years, he studied Torah. And you can't cut that out of the picture. You have to have a solid grounding in what's right, what's wrong, either to be taught it by mentors or whatever. But once you have the MS, your idea is now take that MS and go into the world and change the world. And anybody who sees you cannot be the same person after they have seen you. It's got to be a different type of person that you see over there. So that was what Yaakov's role was. That's able to do it. Now you understand why in next week's Parsha, why D, one of the reasons why Dina gets raped is because when he came back, Yaakov hid Dina in a box so Esav shouldn't see her. Yeah. So you so say, what's wrong with that? Yeah. Would you want to be Meshadach, your daughter, to a hell's angel leader? The answer is, Yaakov, you are the transformation man. 
and you have a daughter, Dina, let her marry this guy. She will find the good in this man. And, it's, and by this point, so first he kills Esav unintentionally in this week's Parsha. So go into Gaulus. And go learn, go learn in Gaulus by loving. Look how much good you could bring out of that place. Now, loving you're not going to change because loving is not a child of, of Yitzchak and not a grandson of Avram, but Esav is. And then when he comes back and he hides his brother, his, his daughter from his brother, the Torah is very strict with him. He says, by now you should have learned that you could succeed. And we're not going to, and, and now we're not going to say, you know, is it still shogeg, unintentional, intentional, whatever. But Yaakov clearly made a huge mistake in, the, in this area. Okay, so now we're just going to close some of the knots over here and understand what the Svas Emes adds in other areas as well. So, uh, it's not inside, but he, the Svasemis tells us, for example, with the stone. When he goes over, so everybody is rolling the stone off of the well. Okay, there's a lot of symbolism to that. Because we know the well, the well represents water, represents life, represents good things. The stone is blocking the water. So the stone represents the Yetzirah. You can't get to the water because of the klipos. Remember those klipos, the shells? Mm -hmm. so, so normally the, the rock blocks it. So what do you do? You try your best to just push the stone away. What is that? Push the evil away so I can get to the water. So they would roll it away. Yaakov revealed the stone. What does that mean to say? He said the stone isn't bad. The stone just needs to be, you have to understand what the stone is protecting and that I have complete mastery over that stone. The biggest thing is not to push away the evil, but to take the evil and make it work for you. Because there is no evil. It's just manifesting in the wrong way. That's what I'm saying. The kid, the wild kid isn't evil. It looks evil. I'm going to have the kid work for good. I'm going to take all his pent-up energy to be good. So revealing the rock to show what is the amazing greatness that's in there, that's what he's meant to do. So you see there's so many hints to what he's supposed to do. And when he starts with the rock, Hashem says, see, this is what I'm, that's going to be your job. And now when you're going to go to Haran, you're going to get that done. And he succeeds in that. And he tries in so many ways. It's very interesting that as much as he won't want to try to change his brother in next week's Parsha, he does try to change the city of Shechem. Mm -hmm. He goes to Shechem and the Medrash says he instituted all kinds of things. He instituted bathhouses. They should have cleanliness. They shouldn't be, they were savages. He's going to have bathhouses. We're going to have commerce. He wants to have all kinds of things. He felt we can transform these people. <laughs> yeah, but you didn't even transform your own brother. So it's going to come back in your face and hit you really hard. Okay, so now, so what's left? Okay, so let, let's just share an interesting little excerpt. There was a very famous Israeli <laughs> activist and a Knesset member in the 60s, a little bit before some of our times. Her name was Goula Cohen. She was not a particularly religious lady, okay? 
And uh, so this uh, was uh, what she had to say in an article she wrote for Ma'ariv, which then and now is not what we would call a friendly newspaper. So she described her meeting with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Okay? And she met with him for two hours. For two hours. She, she got an appointment like at midnight. For two hours he spoke to her. He knew she was a powerful lady in Israel. So she writes like this. I've been in the company of wise men, men of great learning and intelligence, men who were superior artists. But sitting opposite a true believer is quite a different matter. After having met a wise man, you remain the same as before. You have become neither less of a fool nor more of a sage. The education of the man of learning hardly rubs off on you, nor does the artist endow you with any of his talents or inspiration. Not so with a believer. After having met him, you are no longer the same. Though you may not have accepted his faith, you have nevertheless been embraced by it, for the true believer believes in you as well. And that was her impression of seeing the Lubavitch Rebbe. In other words, there's no such thing as meeting the Lubavitch Rebbe or other tzaddikim like that who they have to change you. There's no other way but them to change you. And now we've answered everything uh, except one last point. But again, what, what's the take-home message from here? The take-home message from here is what Yaakov teaches us is that if we are really strong in the emes of what Hashem really is and that Hashem really is the source of all reality and that is so clear to us then we don't have to be afraid where we go and we should always go into situations saying I have the advantage I have Hashem behind me and how can I make this a more godly situation in life as opposed to running away from certain now if you feel you don't have what it takes and you know, you know, then better go away and don't do anything because you can make more trouble and you could be influenced negatively. But what makes Yaakov the great patriarch that he is is we don't find him learning any Torah. We don't find him doing anything where his greatness comes out. He's doing regular things. And this is the world of Rishus. And the whole point of the world of Rishus is to make it holy. To take that which is mundane, but it all is, it's got God's energy. It's all there, and there's no reason why I can't make this a divine thing outside of the base of Mikdash. In our own homes, in our own world, to really elevate that, that's what Yaakov gives us to know that that's really what is there. And that's what Yaakov, and it was a very hard mission for Yaakov, and he struggles with this. He struggles this week's Parsha, next week's Parsha. He struggles with this until. Vayigash, when he's reunited with Yosef. He has ups and downs in this. The same way we have ups and downs. Right? But that's what the real Baal Tshuva does. He's able to take that which was evil, and so it's, there's no such thing as evil. It really has a good source. I have to find that good source. Now, we get one last thing from the Svas Emes about leaving the city. And boy, he said an amazing thing. He said amazing this is, he says, he, he takes this Rashi and flips it on its head, and that's the most amazing thing. We thought it meant, well, as long as the righteous man is in the city, he is its glory and everything. And when he leaves, 
the, 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 the glory departs. But the truth of the matter is, he says, that's the problem. The problem is, if a tzaddik comes into the city and only he is the glory and he is the radiance, then he hasn't accomplished much. But if he leaves and the glory is still there, when the, what the Rosh saying, when he's there, he's the glory. He's the radiance. Okay. But how do you know if he really did his good job? Because when he leaves, it's still there. What Rashi was saying, when he, a regular tzaddik, when he's there, he is the glory. What only leaves? Is there still glory? And that's what Rashi's saying. There's still glory because the tzaddik affected the place. And that's the virtue of Yaakov. It's not a virtue to say, oh, when Rabbi so-and-so was in our community, it was a great community, and we left, we fell apart. What kind of leader was that? Rashi's telling you a positive thing, that, y- that Yaakov made some kind of impression. Maybe not on Esau, but he made, the impression is that when you leave, when he's in the city, and if he is the glory, that doesn't tell us anything. But when he leaves and the mark is still there and the glory is, it's not, he is not the glory. The city is the glory. That means he's really done his job. And that's only why we're saying that by Yaakov. Why? Ah, Yitzhak was there? No, the point was, it wasn't Yaakov was the glory. It wasn't Yitzhak. It's the people were the glory. The glory rubbed off on them and he had some effect on them. That's the, the greatness we're told. So the Svasemis, the Lama Tribute, are going hand in hand over here. And we have to, as we go into the dark days of the winter, we have to realize there's no, there's no evil here. And we have the power of Yaakov Avinu to take every little mundane thing and make it the holiest thing possible. And whatever something encounters us, it should be more divine after it has encountered us. Okay, thank you all for listening. Hope you enjoyed that.